definition. But within the context of our discussion today, I want to share a nuanced definition of transgenerational. That is the transmission of an effect between generations that does not involve direct exposure. The transmission of an effect between generations that does not involve direct exposure. Somebody says, what is this whole idea about not having direct exposure? Let me use electrical transmission to explain it in a simple way. So in the most basic understanding of electricity, there is a generation point or a grid. Now from that grid, let's say that in simple terms, a wire is connected to the grid and it transmits power to the next pole and then to the next pole and to the next pole until it comes to your town, your home or your village. Now that effect is transmitted to you in your home but you have not even seen the national grid before. You have not seen the dam, the thermal plant before, but the effect is transmitted across all the way to where you are. That is the concept we are trying to discuss about transmission without direct exposure. Now, the word generation is simply the time it takes from when a human being is born until where their child is born. We say we have crossed one generation. So for working purposes, people normally use 30 years as a definition of a generation. It's just for working purposes. Because in Abraham's time, they lived longer. So a generation could, could be far longer. But just for our purposes. It's the time between when a person is born and when they have a child. Now, when we say a transgenerational effect, it can be positive or negative. An example of a negative transgenerational effect is a genetic medical condition that is transmitted from one person in the family to their child and to their children's children without any connection to where the thing was originated from. And yet it is being transmitted. Sometimes you can have transgenerational or intergenerational poverty. The poverty is being transmitted from one generation to another. And I found out that the word intergenerational poverty is actually IGP. But we bind every IGP in this house in the name of Jesus. We refuse intergenerational poverty. In our dispensation, in our time, God will help us to create wealth and pass it on to children and generations after us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, a positive transmission is where wealth is transmitted from one generation to another. Where wisdom, where favor is transmitted from one person to the next. So, in essence, that is transgenerational. A covenant is a, a sacred agreement or a mutual promise between God and a person or a group. When God gives you a promise 
and God gives you an assurance to yourself, to your family, to your business, to something you are involved in. It's between you and God. Somebody else without that covenant may not even appreciate or understand that agreement. In making a covenant, God usually sets out the terms and the agreements or promises a blessing for obeying your side of the covenant. So in a typical covenant, God will say, if you do this, I will establish you in this way and you will experience this. So, now that we know what a transgenerational covenant is, a sacred agreement between God and a person or group where the effect is transmitted from one generation to another that may not even have heard from God originally. Let's push on now to the story in Genesis 22 one more time. Genesis 22 verse 9 to verse 19. Last week we dwelt on verse 1 to verse 8. From verse 9, then they came to a place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Verse 10. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, lay not your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked and there behold behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and bent it or offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. Verse 14. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide as it is said to this day in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said by myself I have sworn says the Lord because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son your only son blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore and all your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies in you or in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice so Abraham returned to his young men and they rose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba may the Lord bless his word amen three significant lessons stand out in this very interesting package and the first lesson that jumps up at us is that a prepared sacrifice makes a generational connection a prepared sacrifice makes a generational connection a well-prepared sacrifice can establish a divine connection that goes beyond one generation. 
in verse 9, the Bible says, And they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood on the altar and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. God deliberately chose Mount Moriah for this encounter. God did not just say any mountain. He said, one of the mountains that I, God, will show you. The name Moriah means Jehovah is provider. Let's say it together. Jehovah is provider. One more time. Oh, say it like you are trusting God for his provision. Jehovah is provider. Years later, in that same mountain, three significant sacrifices representing very costly office will take place, all of which remind us that Jehovah is provider. The first was David's threshing floor of Aruna. In the book of First Samuel 24, a thousand years or so after Abraham, David offended God by numbering Israel against God's express instruction. And there was pestilence in the land and 70,000 people died. And David cried to the Lord for mercy and God sent the prophet God to come and tell David what to do. And he said to him, build an altar on a certain plot of land belonging to a man called Aruna. And in verse 22, David goes to Aruna on that threshing floor, which coincidentally is Mount Moriah, and says to Aruna, this pestilence that is killing all of us can be averted if I can make a sacrifice to God on this land. Can I buy it for the sacrifice? Aruna says, what? People are dying. You need my land and you want to pay me. I will give you the land. I will give you the animals. I will give you the wood. I will give you the fire for free. I see the need. But in verse 24 and 25, David says something that is instructive for us even today. Let's read it. Then the king said to Aruna, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. David set a standard for a prepared offering. I will not offer a sacrifice to God which cost me nothing. For something to qualify as a sacrifice to the Lord, it must cost you something. And it must be prepared. You don't give to the Lord casually. What, 
then you just take it and throw it. That is not a prepared, considered offering. Anything you give to the Lord of your time, your service, your talent, your money, your possessions, it must be considered and offered. Several years ago, I recall going to one of the European High Commissions to ask for a flag for our church that was trying to depict an international church with the use of flags. And I requested formally for the flag and was told to come back for the flag after a week. A week later, myself and a couple of my colleagues went for the flag and were waiting in the reception and an ex-serviceman came marching, holding the flag like this, and stood there like this, and then gave the flag like this. And me, too, no young man. I stood there and stretched my hand to receive the flag. And the ex-serviceman stopped and said, young man, will you receive the flag in the same way I'm giving it to you? So I did this, and then he gave me the flag, and now his soul was happy. What he was saying is that you can't just receive this flag anyhow. It does not even show respect to the flag. If even a nation wants their flag to be respected, when you are bringing something to God, young man, young woman, elderly man, elderly woman, can you give this thing to God in the same way that God gives his blessings to you? Hallelujah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Even your clap is an act of honor to God. Clap again. Several years ago, I remember Bishop Bismarck speaking at Greater Works and saying that beyond and, and all through my life, I've never believed that I should give 10% to God. I mean, that's old covenant. Whenever I'm giving my first fruits, I challenge myself and we do it as a, as a practice to always give more than a tenth. But the day I reoriented my mind, not just about first fruits, but also about offering, was when Bishop Bismarck mentioned that as early as Monday, he knows what he will give on Sunday. He says, I have set a certain amount that every week I will give as an offering. And I prepare it before I come. And it's a very important part of my worship and my ritual. I say, wow, there are seniors in this thing. And me, if I learn something from somebody and it is good, I begin to practice it. And it's, it's just been a life-changing realization that if you are giving to a friend on their birthday, you think about what will fit. But somehow, when it comes to God, on, on, on impulse, we just do it. From now onwards, it doesn't matter the amount. Let your offering be communicated with love, with appreciation, and with respect to God. In Jesus' name, amen. The second one is Solomon's temple. For those who do not know, Solomon's temple, incidentally, was also built on Mount Moriah. In 2 Chronicles 3 verse 1, the Bible confirms not just Solomon's temple, but also David's threshing floor that both were on Mount Moriah. So 2 Chronicles 3 verse 1, it says, Now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Onan the Jebusite. Onan is another name for Aruna. So David 
built on Mount Moriah an altar of sacrifice to avert a tragedy, Solomon built on Mount Moriah a temple to honor the Lord. And biblical scholars believe that the exact point where Abraham offered or sought to offer Isaac on the altar is the exact point where the Holy of Holies and the, 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 the Ark of the Covenant containing the mercy seat is located. The holiest part of the temple was the exact point where Abraham built the altar. Does this mean anything to you? God is saying that at that same place, transgenerationally, remember, a prepared sacrifice connects with a generational blessing. No wonder in 2 Chronicles 7 verse 5, when Solomon finished dedicating the temple, he offered what I think is probably the biggest sacrifice in terms of numbers. The Bible says he offered 22,000 cattle and 120,000 sheep. As the Francis will say, Ebe. Solomon was angry. In quotes, just our Shedapa. 20,000 cattle and 120,000 sheep. You say, why? I'll tell you why. If Solomon understands that David was not even the preferred son to be king of Israel, if he understands that at the time they came to select a king, his father was even not around. He was somewhere in the backside of the desert and they asked for the kingship material and Eliab stood up and said, Harvard trained, international correspondent, tall, handsome. They say no. Abinadab. So they call the sons and they say, is that all? They say, yeah, that's all. That's all. Then they say, ah, are you sure? Are these all your sons? They say, oh, there's one B. He's far away. I, I, it's not the type of son that you want. They say that's the one we want to see. And they brought David from the back. I'm sure he hadn't been bad. Smelling of animal droppings. With all the shame, all the dishonor. And God says, you are the one. Now, if God appoints your father like that, it is enough. But when God decides that you too, just because you are a son of David, can sit on the throne, Solomon said, you know what? This one, let me just show God that I appreciate this blessing. Whenever you are sacrificing to God, it is not logical. It is an appreciation of something God has done for you that somebody who doesn't know your story will not understand your sacrifice. If you don't know my story and where I'm coming from, you will not understand why I love the Lord so much and I serve him so much and I worship him so much. But you know your story. I said, you know your story. You know where God brought you from. That is Solomon. But the highest of them all, the third representation of Mount Moriah, 2,000 years after Abraham, guess what? On, in the same vicinity, the Son of God died on the cross for you and I. Abraham prepared the wood for the sacrifice to represent the cross. At this time, in verse 9, 
Isaac must have been watching the old man asking, is he all right? Make no mistake, Abraham and Isaac were close, very close. I'm sure they talked a lot. And Isaac must have watched in total confusion as Abraham was preparing the altar. Because he knew the process. Then the moment of truth came. Abraham held Isaac, put him on the altar, and began to tie him. In the very fertile imagination that I have, the way Isaac felt must have been exactly the same way Jesus felt when he cried out and said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That, in my mind, is how Isaac must have felt. The second lesson we learn from this story is a lesson of total surrender. Bible says, Abraham, at that point, in verse 10, stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay Isaac. Interestingly, check throughout the scriptures, Israel abhorred human sacrifice. The law was very clear that God did not approve of human sacrifice. The nations around them did it, but Israel didn't. That was why in one of the wars, when Israel was about to conquer a, a nation and the nation was threatened, the king sacrificed his son on the wall and Israel left. They pushed back and left because it was an abomination. Jeremiah chapter 19 verse 5 says, it is something that God has never commanded or spoken of and it has never entered his mind. Jeremiah 19 and the verse 5. It has not even entered the mind of God before. Abraham knew God's position. And yet God was asking him to do something that he knew God does not ask. Is God asking you to do something in this season in your life that does not make sense? Is God requiring something of you that is a struggle for you? This morning as we speak. God may be asking you to surrender something that you, you like it and God says, give it up. It could be a relationship that is out of order. And God says, give it up. And you are holding on because you, you like it and God says, listen, trust me and just give it up. It may be a business arrangement that is not proper and God is saying, give it up. There's much better opportunity for you. But how do you trust God? When in your mind you cannot understand it. Job says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. This morning I came to say to you that whenever God asks you for something, do not struggle with him because what do you have that you did not receive from God? Amen. If God spoke to you, it's because he wants to give you something bigger. If it is me, you have a choice. But if God speaks to your heart, allow God to direct you. Because for every seed to grow, it must fall to the ground and die. And that is a moment of uncertainty. You want to go up in life, but you are going down. After going down and building roots, 
then you start going up. And as you go up very fast, they say you are lucky, you are fortunate, you are blessed. What they don't know is that there were times when you were going down, but it was God who instructed you and you trusted him to send you down because you knew he will bring you up. Surrender simply says, Lord, I may not understand everything you are saying, but I know the end will be good. The end will be beautiful and the end will be glorious. I trust you, Lord. You are sovereign and you don't make mistakes. The third and final pillar is provocation of covenant blessings. Sometimes you can provoke by your action a blessing that will lock your life and follow you. I'm talking from experience and from the scriptures. When we offer a prepared sacrifice to God, we provoke or confirm a covenant of blessing that God has prepared for us. God said at that time, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the lad. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. The evident lesson from this is divine timing divine timing. If God knew that last minute he will stop Abraham from doing it, why did he let him go till the door? But you see, God is a covenant keeper and God is never too late. I said God is never too late. And God is also never too early. The timing of God is very interesting. He is never too early and he is never too late. In your walk with God, you will sometimes ask God, but God, so waiting until Abraham lifted the knife, what if the network had failed? What if the heaven mobile network had failed just at that time? By the time you call, the guy will be gone. But you see, God is very interested. Why did he allow the storm to brew and the disciples to fret before Jesus woke up from the sleep and said, peace be still? Because in our walk with God, God is never too early and God is never too late. Let me encourage somebody today. You are going through something and you are praying to God and, you, and God has heard the prayer. And you are asking God, Father, didn't you hear? He says, I have heard. Then why are you not moving? God's timing is impeccable. Listen, sometimes if God gives you a blessing prematurely, you will get a small one. You see, when Joseph was in prison, if God had given him the blessing then, they would have made him some small... If, when he said, listen, when you go to the king's palace, when you go, remember me. If they had remembered him at the time, they would have given him some small work to do, maybe senior servant. But God had to wait. The timing was not ripe. Wait until Pharaoh has a dream and the need is big. That one, when you come, they will make you prime minister. Let me assure somebody that the delay you are encountering is a divine orchestration. The time is still not ripe. At the appointed time, God will come through for you and God shall not fail. I said God shall not fail. I said God shall not fail. God will honor you. It will be beautiful. It will be public. Your celebration will be public. 
your suffering and your provocation and your shame is private. You are carrying it in private and crying out at night. But the day of glory, it shall be public. God will lift up your head in public and it shall be beautiful and glorious. Hallelujah. Divine timing. The second lesson is divine confirmation. Everything that God was saying, God has said it already. God says, now I know that you fear God. Please, God is omniscient. It was not then that God knew Abraham. God knows everything. So he knew that Abraham could be trusted. It was the same God who said, I know my servant Abraham. In Genesis 18 verse 19, he says, I know my servant Job. God knows us. He knows you, Edward. He knows you. He knows you. God knows you by name, Mr. Amma. He knows you. He knows what you will do and what you will not do. He knows. So God is not now being educated about your competence or capabilities. God knows. God knew the answer before the question was asked. But you see, a good teacher knows his or her best students. You know what they are capable of. You know what you have taught them. And yet, you still allow them to go through the exams. And you expect them to pass. And when they pass, you are not surprised. All you will say is that, now I know that you are a good student. The good teachers are the ones who rejoice when you pass. Because they knew that they had prepared you to pass. It is the other ones whose name I will not mention. That's it. Hey, I will give you an exam and you will see. And when they, you feel, they say, I told you. Those are the other ones. But good teachers. How many teachers are here? Teachers. <laughs> Please be the good ones, okay? When your students pass, you must be happy. You must say, now I know. May God look at you and say, now I know. I say, may God look at you and say, now I know. May something you do in this season remind God that you are a covenant person and if he expands you and increases you, you will continue to serve him. Let me say, my dear friends, that sometimes the way we kill these covenants is that imagine that, let me take it into the human realm. You promote somebody to become, let's say, distribution manager. This person is an usher, loves the Lord Jesus Christ. Suddenly you have become distribution manager, whatever that is. And you are so excited about your new post that this time, in case you didn't know, I am the distribution manager. So you don't usher anymore. Oh, just the first level of the blessing, now you have stopped ushering. Distribution manager. God's ultimate was to make you the CEO. If you can't be trusted to love and serve God with distribution manager, then of course you have truncated the blessing. For you, distribution manager is big, but for God, it was only the beginning. One day I went to Calvary Temple on a Good Friday accompanying my dear Pastor Table to go and speak in the morning. When I got there, somebody in security um, um, car park vest, I greet you, chief, 
somebody in car park vest pointed to somewhere for me to park my car. And I was going to park. Then I looked and I said, no, it's not possible. This person directing me when I was in Form 1 was in Form 5. It's also not like he had not done well. This was the director general of the Ghana Law School. Pointing me to park. I said, senior, I won't park. <laughs> I won't park. I just could not see myself going to park. He says, oh, come on, do it. Look, you know you can park, but you're going for You feel it is not right. But you know what? I said, no wonder God is still blessing him. Can God trust you? Can God trust you? Can God trust you? You have opened one business and made some hundred thousand and you are so happy that you say, okay, now when I come to church, listen, ushers, address me with respect, okay? Oh, please. This was just level one of 17 levels. Can God trust you, somebody in this service? Tell somebody, relax. Tell the person, relax. This is just the beginning. There is much more where that one came from. This is only level one. Level two is coming. Then level three. Then level four. If you understand what the Lord has done for you, when they give you that promotion letter, you come to the head usher and say, this week I'm on duty. Next week I'm on duty. Next two weeks I'm on duty. What the Lord has done for me, I will usher with all my heart. It's a confirmation. Now I know that you can be trusted. It is a confirmation. Something God has said about your life. If God can trust you, the next level is coming. Still under, under provocation, we see divine provision. A sacrifice provokes a covenant-keeping God's provision. Bible says at that point, Abraham lifted up his eyes, verse 13, and looked. And there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. Let me establish that the ram was already provided. The ram did not appear at that time. It was always there. But Abraham was yet to see it. It was probably there even before God spoke to him for the first time three days ago to go to the mountain. The ram was there. Revelation 13, 8 says the lamp was slain before the foundation of the world. There is a provision God has made for you even before the problem came. The name of the place was Jehovah has provided. The ram was already there. God's provision of the ram confirmed the law of substitution. That simply means that something that should have been your portion, your trouble, is put on somebody else. Isaac, you were just about to go. The provision of this ram is about the law of substitution. For God commanded his love towards us, Romans 5, 8, such that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is the law of substitution. The difference between Isaac and Christ is that whereas Isaac last minute, God intervened in the case of Christ because he himself had offered himself to die. God turned his back and allowed it to happen. This 
It's a sacrifice you can't take for granted. Hallelujah. It is obvious that as long as your head is bowed down and you are looking down in despair, thinking about your troubles, you cannot see God's glorious provision. It was when Abraham passed the test, fulfilled his obedience, prepared his sacrifice, and provoked the covenant, Bible says at that point, he lifted up his eyes, and his eyes were opened. Is it possible that at a stage in your life, you are going up and down, seeing physically, but your eyes are closed? Is it possible that when you offer a certain kind of sacrifice, your eyes are opened and a provision God has made a long time ago, you will now see it. In this season, may your eyes be opened. I say in this season, may your eyes be opened. May God open your eyes to something he has prepared a long time ago. Finally, a generational crossover. A divine generational crossover. Crossover means from one dispensation to another. On 31st night, when we go to crossover, we cross from one year to another. So when we say a divine crossover or a generational crossover, Bible says in verse 15, then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham. Put your name there. Then the angel of the Lord called to Jeremiah or to Oreku, put your name there. Or to Sephako, put your name there. The angel of the Lord called to Felicia a second time out of heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Verse 17. Blessing, I will bless you. Somebody say amen. amen. Multiplying, I will multiply your descendants. Somebody say amen. amen. He says, your descendants shall possess the gates of your enemies. That means that any battle that comes against them, they will prevail. Sometimes you fight some battles and you look at your children and you say, you know what? They are not fighting those battles because you fought them brute force. But God has blessed you. And your children are cruising. That's a blessing. May that be your portion. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because you have obeyed my voice. I'm interested in God appearing a second time because everything God said, he had told Abraham already. In Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. Appearing a second time is what they call confirmation. I said it and I meant it, but because of what you have done, I'm confirming it and telling you for sure that this one is not just for you. Your children will benefit. Your children's children will benefit. Let me say that a generational person lives your life thinking about generations after you. That's what the Bible says, means when it says that a good person lives an inheritance for their children's children. There was a king in the Bible who was told that 
there will be war and there will be destruction and the kingdom will be taken away from you in the time of your son. He said, is it happening in my time? They said, no. He said, oh, then it's okay. If it will not happen in my time, it's okay. But a good person leaves an inheritance for their children's children. May a legacy anointing come upon your life. Something that says God will bless me so much that my children will be blessed. And my children's children will be blessed. Let me conclude today by saying that you can provoke a transgenerational blessing. You can lift up something before God and God will appear a second time. Interestingly, in 1 Kings 9 verse 2, Bible says, when Solomon offered the sacrifice in dedicating the temple, God appeared to Solomon a second time. There is something about a second time. Today, I make an announcement. May God appear to somebody a second time. May God appear to you a second time. Something that God has told you, but in the intermediate period, you are going through uncertainty and wondering, did God really say it? May your sacrifice cause God to appear a second time. And may he confirm a blessing upon your life and upon your children's children. This morning... I want to conclude by saying that in this season of sacrifice, something you do will establish and provoke a blessing not just upon yourself, but your children's children. There have been moments in my life, Comfort and I, where our backs have been against the wall. Strong, strong challenges. And there are times in your life when you are in trouble and you know that if you don't pass this test or win this battle, the effects will be for generations. And in some of those moments, even in your difficulty and struggle, you just have lifted up a sacrifice and said, Lord, without any condition, remember us. Today, looking back, those were defining moments that those battles were won for generations after us. Today, I make a pronouncement something you do in your life in this season will unlock the door for generations after you. Something you do in your life in this season will provoke a covenant blessing that is transgenerational. And some of those who will come and enjoy did not even see the God you saw, but they will come into the transmission of the effect of this covenant. In Jesus' name, amen.